And uh, from the text, Embracing Mind, uh, this is jumping up to chapter 12, which is the chapter entitled Different Practices. And uh, of course, in one way, you know, koans for Soto Zen practitioners can be seen as constituting different practices, since traditionally that's been seen as uh, being the province of the Rinzai school. But that's kind of a misunderstanding, uh, given the fact that uh, Hong Ji, uh, one of the important uh, ancestors for us in our lineage, uh, he compiled an important koan collection uh, that's titled The uh, Book of Serenity. And Dogen as well, uh, one of the uh, projects that he undertook when he returned to Japan from his uh, four years in China, was to compile uh, a 300 koan collection, which uh, some 15 years or so ago, uh, John Dido Lurie uh, uh, pu had published together with his own uh, commentaries and verse accompaniments. So koans are very much a part of the, uh, of the Soto Zen tradition. And uh, while they may figure somewhat differently in our tradition in the way they are used, but they are very, very important. And hopefully that will, uh, will come through in, uh, in what we look at this morning. So, and there were actually, I guess, before I get into to Coben, uh, there were a couple of other things. Uh, one of them was kind of uh, uh, fortuitous uh, that I decided I would uh, start this morning's talk with. Since uh, in retirement, I've, I've largely stopped ordering books from Amazon, and I've been uh, a frequent user of the library. but. Uh, with their closing for the for for the foreseeable future, uh, the books that that are waiting for me there, uh, I can't go pick them up. So I was thinking, well, I'm either going to have to uh, break down and buy some books, or I've got a bunch of books. Uh, you can see a small portion of them in the background here. Uh, I could find some of those uh, and some typically that I've already read but uh, but since I do uh, underline I often will pull them off and uh, within a matter of, of a couple of days I could go through a book that maybe took me a couple of weeks when I first read it so the one I pulled off that I thought might be uh, worth uh, a reread was is titled it's it's actually written by a psychologist it's titled how emotions are made so uh, and I just happened I was flipping through on the first passage I had underlined that uh, that I uh, that I came to whoops and I just Looked off of it. Oh, here it is. Yeah. Okay. She says, What's happening in your brain when you categorize? She asks the question, What's happening in your brain when you categorize? You are not finding similarities in the world, but creating them. So for those of you that have been studying the Diamond Sutra with us, uh, that should sound remarkably familiar. When your brain needs a concept, it constructs one online, mixing and matching from a population of instances from your past experience to best fit your goals in a particular situation. 
And herein lies a key to understanding how emotions are made. So this notion of what we were, were calling Lakshana, using the Sanskrit term uh, in our study of the Diamond Sutra, our fabrications, our constructions that we base our understanding of reality upon, they become very real for us. But psychologically, they, they're seen as being these fabrications. We create them to serve pragmatic purposes in the course of our life. And in that fashion, they, they do serve an important uh, purpose. And in, in and of themselves, they are not the problem. The problem is the fact that we misconstrue them and therefore misuse them as being something substantial, as being the truth, when they, that's not what they're about. That's, they don't come from that place. That prompted me to then turn back to the index, because even though I had read this book before, I wanted, I couldn't remember any real references to Buddhism in here, but obviously uh, what I had just looked at, which like I said, fortuitously was the first thing I, I uh, went to in the book, uh, struck me as being so Buddhist, I figured, well, she must touch on it here, here and there somewhere in the text. And she does actually in a couple of places. So the one I wanted to share with you is just a real short passage. She says, in Buddhism, some forms of meditation help to recategorize sensations as physical symptoms to reduce suffering, a practice Buddhists call deconstructing the self. This deconstruction of the self is uh, what we're going to be looking at when we do turn to what Coben has to say about koans. So that's why I wanted to, to introduce that. And then the other thing, which I have been reading, uh, is speaking of koans, it's actually uh, a book called Zen Letters, Teachings of Yanwu. Y-U-A-N-W-U. And Yanwu is very important in Zen in general, but especially in the Rinzai tradition, because just like I was describing how Hongji and Dogen in the Soto uh, tradition had compiled koan collections, uh, Yanwu did that for the Rinzai uh, tradition, uh, assembling the uh, certainly the most important collection in that tradition, the Blue Cliff Record, which I suspect most, if not all of you, have at least heard of. So this uh, isn't made up of koans, however. They're, it's just a collection of letters that he wrote to help uh, people with their practice. I thought that would be an interesting way to uh, to kind of connect with uh, with his teaching uh, in in a way that's outside of of koans, at least uh, directly speaking. So here's a pa a again a short passage that I think kind of points to the heart of the matter in terms of of what koans are, are uh, up to. He says, it is necessary to get to the reality and reveal to learners the thing in each one of them that is the fundamental matter of great liberation. Without dependencies, without contrived activities, without concerns. Looking into this great matter, great matter of life and death, or 
Jukai class yesterday, uh, uh, Mark referenced the evening gatha that reminds us at the end of a full practice day at 8.30 uh, at the conclusion of our final sitting of the day. It reminds us of the urgency of this practice. You know, let me respectfully remind you Life and death are of supreme importance. Each of us should strive to awaken. Take heed. This night, your remaining days are diminished by one. Each of us should strive to awaken. Awaken. Take heed. Do not squander your life. That's to help make sure people will be back the next morning after a full day of practice. It's important, or at least to those that enter the practice and stay in the practice, it's important. Because of that arising of bodhicitta that we've talked about. The importance of the great matter So how do we work with that? That brings us to what Coben has to say. On the, uh, the subsection of that chapter 12 that's titled Koans. And there he says, he has this to say. When you read something and ask, what does this mean? This question opens you up. If it's a really sincere, deep question. And, you know, when, when I uh, uh, put, at, put this in my notes for this morning, I kind of put in brackets the read something when you read something, because that's uh, way too limiting. Although in the context of koans, I, I can understand why that would have but uh, literally this is for anything that we encounter or meet and the more intimate that encounter that meeting that coming together the the more the question that arises from it will open us up reading can certainly do that but it's not our usual style of reading it's the reading that we enter into kind of already opened up. And then he says, it seems that all koans are related to the basic pattern of one's self-realization. So this is about seeing this great matter within ourselves. That's where the search takes place. So a koan is just a guide to enabling us to carry on that search. It can set forth a path for us, kind of a pathless path, just like the Mumon Khan, another important collection of koans in the Rinzai uh, tradition. Uh, Mumon Khan means gateless gate. Pathless path. So there is a path to walk. There is a gate to go through. But there isn't. It's empty. And a lot of koans are about that discovery. 
that what one thinks is real and substantial when one dives deeply into it. It, you find that you can actually let that go and move beyond Buddha going beyond Buddha is going through the gateless gate. And that's a practice that's open to each and every one of us. So Zazen is doing similar work to working with koans. It's about continuing to let go. Whatever's coming up, let it go. Because all we're about is freeing ourselves from obstructions. A few weeks ago, when we were still coming together physically to practice on Sunday mornings, uh, one of the uh, teaching phrases we looked at came from the uh, Song of the Grass Hut. Uh, thousands of words, myriad interpretations are only to free you from obstructions. So that's true of koans too. They don't have any substantial existence. So don't attach to them, but use them as like a medical device to free you from obstructions. They're like, uh, kind of like a statin, like Lipitor, prevents blockages prevents obstructions or clears those up, helps to prevent them from reoccurring. And that's the practice of Zazen, the continual practice of letting go. So when we come together to sit like we did this morning, I mean, what a beautiful thing to be able to, to just bow to your cushion, bow, turn and bow in the other direction to each other and just sit with no objective other than just to clear oneself. So we talked previously from Coben's book about trust and faith. You can see again how that is so tightly interwoven with this practice. If we're going to continue to let go of things that we feel we need, because, because we're so conditioned to hold on to those, we're convinced these are real. I have to have this. Zen is about letting anything go, anything and everything, without exception. In that way, that doesn't mean we all just kind of go wandering off. Isolated, we maintain our lives and our connectedness. But we've now seen through to this essential manner. So we can be liberated in the midst of our various relationships. And in fact, to the, to the extent we become liberated, the quality of those relationships seems quite frequently to, to really increase. It's interesting what uh, a little liberation can do for all beings, for the benefit of all beings. Because, and this is the next point Coben makes, which keeps us from just kind of uh, 
getting lost in the freedom, in the liberation. He says the relative self is related to the absolute presence. And related may be too weak a term to use. It's, it's no different from the relative self, the self that's in all these various relationships. is where we find the absolute presence, right there. Ordinary mind is the way. Samsara nirvana. But in order to see that, we have to be able to cut through the, the restrictions, the limitations that our sense of the relative generally impose upon us. So we don't have to throw those overboard. Typically, some of them we may find we do. But typically, that's not the problem. The problem is that we're missing the absolute presence in our life and in our relationships. And that's why I said earlier that, uh, that actually by, by getting in touch with this great matter, the emptiness of all things, we can greatly enhance our personal life, our relations with others, all that we kind of put together under this umbra general umbrella of the conventional, the relative. So then he says, in your innermost place, this place that the koan work or the practice of zazen is, is about getting us intimately in touch with. In your innermost place, this meeting with the absolute is the essential subject. And that's why these practices are designed for the letting go of everything else. In the midst of those practices. And when you succeed in it, when we do in our innermost place, have this meeting with the absolute, then at that moment you feel your life is perfect. Those kind of mystical type states. But of course, it doesn't end with that. It's not about having some special experience that then you, that then you try to keep coming back to and coming back to. It's about having the deeper understanding that that is actually an ever-present part of your life in everything you do. To have that insight with great clarity requires letting go of all that stuff. So you can see it clearly. But part of that clarity involves the ability to come back out and continue to see its presence. And that when you don't, it's because of the arising of obstructions, of afflictive states. And practice 
continues. Because, as Coben puts it, important to recognize, but I think we all do to begin with anyway, but it doesn't hurt to be reminded of it. He says it doesn't, of course, continue its perfection moment after moment when we do get those tastes of perfection. They're fleeting. But they're fleeting because we're not seeing it, not because they disappear in some substantial way. They're always there. So from koans, I mean, actually, uh, Coben closes this section by, by coming back to, to sitting, shikantaza, just sitting, where he says sitting should be utterly open. So it's not sitting to uh, accomplish this. We're just sitting. As I described that practice this morning of just going to your cushion and sitting in complete openness. To spend 30 minutes just being open and aware, openly aware. And seeing that ability to do that practice and the aspect of your life that, that uh, you become aware of through that practice, seeing it as being this, this complete gift that you don't have to do anything to realize. That's why it's important to sit without any objective where you're working to get somewhere. And either you get, get there or you don't, or maybe you make a little bit of progress. And uh, you have a place maybe you can start from next time to get a little further. Uh, this is just sitting down and, and appreciating the gift that presents itself to you through this practice of Zazen. There's no intention involved in it. This notion, putting it in the framework of the Eightfold Path of right intention is, is really no intention, seeing the emptiness of intention. Or intention is just the practice. To be awake moment after moment. That's our intention, to be openly aware moment after moment. And for those of you that were with us this past Thursday when we were looking at eco-dharma, we had occasion to talk about uh, generosity, True dana, not, not being given with any kind of objective. It's just this free, open act of generosity. And this is true about the entire practice. It's not about attaining anything. So to practice in this way involves seeing each and every moment of our life as being this gift, which means the absolute penetrates through everything. It's always there. So the role of trust and faith that we've looked at in the past in connection with Coben's teachings is based on this understanding of our life in uh, a different way of expressing it would be that you know all things are sacred all the, the divine is ever present 
And it's on that basis that we put our faith and trust in whatever it is that's to come next. And when we can do that, now we can be fully present and aware of what's here right now. Because we're not driven by anxiety for what's to come. We can certainly have have it within our awareness of the future. So if we're uh, battling a pandemic, certainly want to measure trends and and take them out into the future to measure progress because that then brings us back to the present and what do we need to do right now and it always needs to come back to that the past informs it the future informs it but it's actually happening right now what will we do now as it reverberates out, ripples out to all times, to all beings? Because our scheming mind is always calculating what's the precise effect of this going to be. Of course, as we see with the dealing of with with an event like a pandemic, as some similarities to weather patterns, it's it doesn't lend itself to that kind of precise modeling. So you bring your care and your concern, and but it's important to also bring with you this this realization of not knowing, which doesn't relieve us of of caring and taking action for the protection of others, whether it's a pandemic or an environmental crisis. What we looked at in Eco-Dharma, because all these texts are constantly overlapping, interweaving, is the fact that our practice of caring for our home, for this planet, for our environment, isn't contingent upon any particular outcome. That even if we had a scientific certainty that, uh, that global warming was going to run its course in, in a way that would be very catastrophic to most life on this planet, it wouldn't relieve us of this impulse to care for it. We'd never reach a point with anything where we would just trash it. And I related it Thursday to to hospice care, where the diagnosis is, maybe not with 100% certainty, but close to it that the patient is going to die and die very soon but we still provide care and we feel that's important to do we feel a calling to do that so the caring comes from a deeper place than the outcome it's not to say the outcome is irrelevant if a person could be tr- subject to treatment and improvement, then we would take them out of hospice and put them into an active treatment protocol. But then if it reverts back to hospice, then we're back still to providing the care that's appropriate at that time. But it's always caring, always. even if it, if standard treatment protocols are no longer appropriate. That's part of life, part of working in the conventional world is to be able to make those distinctions. But deep down, there's still the caring, regardless of the scenario. 
you know, in the educational realm, uh, different approaches for different individuals. Not everybody's going to respond well to the same approach. So if it's one size fits all, it won't fit all. We know that in anything, in anything. So the final thing I wanted to kind of touch on here is, since we've pointed to it here with, uh, with this subject matter of, of koans, this, the importance of, it, and it also then ties back to, to last week's look at Ken show, to get these glimpses so we have some notion in some fashion or another about a uh, the this realm of the absolute you know some deeper uh truth of reality we have a fuzzy notion and it seems that this is very very important and role models that we've we have experienced in life. And this isn't limited to a particular spiritual tradition. This is across the board, role models that really teach us something and, and kind of bring us to, to seeing the importance of something and to basing our lives on following that. So as I've said before, this uh, the Im rich imagery of the Oxfording pictures, where we do get glimpses initially, and then uh, uh, clearer sightings as we continue following the ox, which is following the self, our study of the self. And it called to mind, So I do like to occasionally bring uh, music into it, especially if it can be jazz. It called to mind uh, a figure that uh, who who had a huge impact, and he's still with us, uh, although he stopped performing. Uh, Sonny Rollins, who was about as intense in his practice as you could be. And uh, I read uh, an interview with him uh, that's fa fairly recent since he stopped performing and learned for the first time that actually he, he is studying Buddhism. Come as a big, big shock to me. But the part of his story, one of the best known parts, which goes back uh, to about 60 years ago now, was he already uh, was a pretty accomplished tenor saxophonist. Had played with Thelonious Monk, uh, Miles Davis, and was uh, developing into a powerful solo performer. But in the middle, the summer of 1959, he stopped performing publicly. He just wasn't satisfied with his practice. So what he did, he would go out every day on the uh, Williamsburg Bridge in the New York City area, and he would play, and he would play, and he would play. And he did this for over two years. When he finally finished his, his practice, series of, of ongos, we could call it, uh, in the fall of 1961, and he came down from the bridge <laughs> and, and went into the studio and cut a record that was titled The Bridge. And from that point on, went on to have a very illustrious career. Now, one of the factors 
that led him to the bridge. It wasn't uh, something that was that he formulated in his mind that that was the motivation, but he was very open when others pointed it out that, uh, that maybe that was, was a factor, could well have been, uh, was he had a couple of other saxophonists that, that were really setting, setting the standard, you might say. Uh, one of them who performed on his, his own instrument, uh, John Coltrane, was a deeply spiritual player. Uh, his best known recording was titled A Love Supreme. So Sonny was, was watching him develop into this profound artist and that impacted him, you know, clearly. One of Sonny's uh, Earlier recordings, Tenor Madness, uh, included a, a duet with him and John Coltrane playing together. So he, he knew Coltrane and he knew what he was up to. In fact, uh, I, I've heard it said that, uh, that Sonny Rollins only had uh, two two saxophonists that he was competing with, and one of them was himself. <laughs> what a truth. <laughs> the other one obviously being Coltrane. But, you know, this was a case of somebody who, who experienced this kind of deep, deep playing and needed to find that within himself. What he did was go out and spend the next two years plus uh, working at it, working at it. You know, I see parallels there with us. Uh, and, and just from, from reading, from studying, from, from working with various teachers, that we become really driven. Sonny Rollins like in some instances. This is this is a, this is the the great matter. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time swiftly passes. So we get out on the bridge every morning and practice, practice our craft, our art form of our life. Then we come back into the studio and release our work. We do that day after day after day, and 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 of course we see how the two are intertwined. So our practice becomes our life again, but in that different way, where it's it's just it's ever present. So. That's, uh, I think, a good place to, to stop and open it up to everybody. I think everybody just wants to go sit now, right?
Hey, Dean, I was just thinking about what you said about his, <clears throat> one of the people he competes against is himself. And mm -hmm. I, I can totally identify with that because I'm just never happy with anything that I always trying to do something better, one up myself and find new ways to express my, myself musically. So, and I'm just kind of always up against it point where I just, I'll put it down for a while because I get frustrated. Yeah. Then when I come back to it, you know, fresh, maybe that's what he was doing. He put it down, got stepped away and just whatever came naturally instead of trying to force it. I found myself doing that. Not only with my music, but with my my practice. So if I just kinda step away and just kinda let it happen by itself. I, I found to be a lot more of a, a flow goes a river as it was said. I had a kind of a question, Dean, on um, like Ken Show and Sudden Enlightenment and then aren't koans, or is that only in the Rinzai side, more at more of a vehicle for Sudden Enlightenment rather than Gradual Enlightenment? Um, and isn't Soto more of the Gradual? I don't know. It always seems like to me Rinzai has this goal of enlightenment, and a koan is kind of just a, a vehicle to get you there to a Sudden Enlightenment. Is that accurate or is that not? Well, I mean, I, it could be seen that way, but then, uh, uh, you know, a number of Buddhists would see uh, uh, the practice of Zazen in Soto as being that same, same type, type of format. So you could see any of these practice vehicles in that fashion. And, you know, when we begin the practice often that's kind of our mindset I think if we're honest with ourselves but then ultimately uh, when one begins to get some insight one can begin to see the truth of the teaching that will actually you know the whole the whole thing is there in each moment with, with each in-breath with, with each koan. So in Rinzai, you know, you have this, uh, this uh, structured approach to working through koans, and, and there can be this sense of, of like progressing stages. And actually, uh, Yan Wu's letters uh, in several places talks about this isn't about stages. There are no stages. <laughs> That's important. There are no stages. The stages is right now. This is the stage of your life. And that's true regardless, I think. But you can see it both ways. Yeah. Lee? Um, I love the the concept or the description, I should say, of the gift. Because for me, I think that really, um, it's the best description. Um, that I, I'm changing my, my concept of Zazen a lot uh, since we've been on the session and especially, but that you're really there to receive. And it's not, not to make anything happen. And I guess, you know, from a, maybe in a Christian uh, definition, you could call it grace, that it's a receiving of, of a, uh, something that's already there. So we don't actually have to manipulate or to, you know, strive, that it's actually just a receiving of it. And I think that's really important for me because I think I've gotten hung up at times on um, 
wanting to recreate something that happened before or try to uh, latch on to some experience. And I think that thinking of it instead as this gift that is just ever present and that, you know, it comes and goes, it's a flow. Uh, I lo really love that description a lot. So thank you. Good. And the, the fact that in Zen, it, uh, as part of the meal chant, we, we chant uh, the em seeing the emptiness of the three wheels, giver, receiver, and gift, so that actually it's, it's definitely being the receiver, but when you see the emptiness of all of those, you're seeing as well that because the gift is ever-present, you're also the giver. There's nothing to hold on to. So you're always receiving the gift, but then with open hands, you're always passing it through. Because if you're mm. always receiving the gift, it would be kind of crazy to say, mm. well, yeah, <laughs> you know, hang, hanging on to this when you know, well, the gift, it's the gift that keeps giving, right? Uh -huh. uh, quite literally. So the, you, you really enter into that space of the, the emptiness of all three of those wheels, the giver, the receiver, and the gift itself. Mm. And it's, it's just that act of generosity, of appreciation and gratitude, and of you know, being for the benefit of all beings mm. as, the, as the gift itself. Uh, all of it. All of it. So... Uh, and sometimes, you know, we will feel more like one part of it than the other. But the reality is we're always all three. Oh. We're always all three. Hmm. Because we kind of, we're, we're, uh, we're seeing our Buddha nature, our divine nature. So that makes us uh, also the givers of, of grace. We're the receivers and the givers. Hmm. That's the emptiness of the, the teaching of emptiness contains that real reality, that realization. And it's very different because the other way is seeing a, a deep separation between the divine and, uh. and the creation. And this is actually healing in terms of, of creating that wholeness that, that, that the divine is in all things so not only are we receivers of grace but we're conveyors of it mm. so that's the 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 one difference i mm. i think although there are certainly christians who who do see uh, the divine in that kind of fashion yeah. and that's been true for uh pretty much the entirety of Christianity going back to the Gnostic Gospels. So mm. it's part of that tradition. It's just not one that's been emphasized as widely as, as maybe it should have been, but more so these days. So, so for those that are interested in the Christian tradition and the parallels, they're there. They're there. Jean? Jean? Oh, no, I was just... Uh, oh, sorry. okay. That's mm. all right. <laughs> Although I will say that uh, <clears throat> I appreciated so much what you said about... Uh, going back to the eco-dharma and talking about the care with which we would approach the planet or even people um, who are in hospice. You know, the, the notion that even if something is coming to conclusion, it's not tossed to the curb, it's cared for deeply. Um, today is the three-year anniversary of my husband's death and he died in hospice. Wow. And um, I'm reminded uh, deeply by your comment about the immense care that he received in four days worth of hospice. He had a stroke and then died four days later. And um, there was a, 
an amazing outpouring of love, care, and concern. Um, people in that profession are trained in that. To be a recipient of that um, unconditioned caring, unconditional love from perfect strangers yeah. uh, really demonstrates to me the kind of hopefulness that um, I would like to bring to others. You know, one could say we're all dying, you know, um, to, to come from that platform. But um, it was especially helpful to me when you were talking about that relating to the environmental issues. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I heard it the other day, but I heard it quite differently today. And, uh, I just thank you, you know, thank you very much for bringing that up. It's very moving for me. Thanks for sharing your experience from that. So I guess we could uh, go ahead and chant out then. And our, our next co coming together will be on Thursday, uh, sitting at 7 and talk beginning at 8.10. And I'll have an email going out tomorrow. I also sent in chat a link to the Spotify album, The Bridge. If anybody wants oh, thank you. <laughs> You high-tech guys. I swear. <laughs> I've got my CD here. <laughs> May our, our intention equally Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. All right. Well, I hope everybody enjoys the rest of what's supposed to be a sunny day, I think. Mm. Even if it's a little chillier than we've had the past couple of days. I'll leave that up for just a minute if anybody wants to copy that link. Okay. Yeah, cool. Yeah, thank you very much, Keith. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Keith. Bye. Keith, um, there's a thing going around about the Zoom bombers or whatever. Are you going yeah. to be putting a password on this thing? I don't know. I figured I, I don't We could tell. Dean and I have talked about it. I'd rather not because that might inhibit people to getting on. They are. Yeah, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. To, uh, to require a password and a waiting room, but then I can just go back and change it to not have either of those. But what it is is like, not like neo-nazis were jumping on church services and screaming about jews and stuff and it was in kids classrooms like it was really just jerky stuff i think the odds of that happiness are pretty slim and i'd rather just leave it how it is and, and if, if, if someone jumped on here real quick i can mute them and kick them out and we're all adults and i think you can just say oh that was stupid then maybe at that point we'd start using a password but. yeah i would prefer to leave it without a password if we can get away with it yeah well, I, I was hearing that Zoom was going to make it so that everybody had to do it. So I got uh, so I got an email from Zoom saying they're going to reset the default to ha having a password. So that just means okay. it's the default, but I can still change it. It's what I believe, and it was supposed to happen today. And here we are. Okay. We're with no password, so I don't know. Because it's been happening to some recovery groups that I've. Yeah, that's when I heard a couple of AA meetings, like big meetings, that got really out of Yeah. Here. 
Right. Well, that sucks. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll play yeah. it by ear. I want to leave it with no password as long as I can. This 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 whole people staying at home has got people pretty bored, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> got nothing better to do. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> stupid things like that. <laughs> Even the stupid people need something to do, right? I'm, I'm sorry. That was bad. <laughs> yeah. Thank me, sorry. You're right. Thank you. <laughs> Who are those people? Uh, all right. See you, everybody. All right, Joe. People coming from the great point of suffering. <laughs> <laughs> See y'all later.